Welcome back to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Will Wood's Faith in Marriage. I am your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and so happy to have you with us today. Abortion. You can't say the word without evoking angst, defensiveness, or possibly rage. The problem, however, with the word becoming a barometer of left versus right affiliation is that the people who suffered them are being lost in the cracks. Can we look past the politics and just try to be helpful? Or what about a miscarriage? How do we minister to someone when they've experienced death? It just seems like we don't know how to talk about these moments anymore with freedom, empathy, or compassion. Well, that's what this episode's about, and joining me today is the founder and director of Life Perspectives, Michaeline Friedenberg. In this episode, we talk about the various types of reproductive loss and best practices when helping someone after they've experienced it. We discuss the differences in grief due to a miscarriage or an abortion. We challenge the notion that it's just business as usual following either one of them. We also talk about the differences between how men and women grieve following a reproductive loss. Listen, I know that this is a sensitive topic, but my prayer is that you can hear this episode with an open heart. There are a lot of people in our communities who have experienced a miscarriage or an abortion, and we need to give them space to speak up and process their pain. If that's you, my hope is that this episode gives you that permission that you need to grieve. After the show is done, please follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I look forward to hearing from you there and listening to your feedback and comments. Let's get into the show. Michaeline Friedenberg, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm, I'm amazed, as I just said a few minutes off air, that, you know, 730 in the morning, you are ready to go. So it just really speaks to your dedication and love for the work that you are doing. So tell yeah. me, tell me a little bit about reproductive loss. Um, that's kind of the, the catch all term that you use to describe the, the nonprofit in the, in the particular work and service that you guys offer. But what does that mean? What is reproductive loss? Well, a reproductive loss um, really could be any loss either um, before birth or shortly after birth. So miscarriage, abortion, stillbirth, uh, infertility, um, early infant death, even children born with severe disabilities. Um, We know we remember celebrating the life of that child. Well, at the same time, there's often um, a lifetime of grieving as perhaps they're not able to do the things that their, their peers or other family members Adoption as well. Um, Adoption is something we celebrate, but sometimes we forget about the fact that there's a lot of grief that's involved for the birth family who relinquished the child. And even the adoptive family often is seeking to adopt because they've had reproductive losses of their own. And we're not equating any of these losses. We know they're different. They're unique. They occur differently. But we also know that our society often doesn't acknowledge them. We often don't know how to support each other. Um, And the grief and the loss that is felt is often very similar. Amen. Wow. So how does Life Perspectives, the nonprofit that you're the founder and the director of, how does it help to meet the needs of the women and men who have struggled with a reproductive loss? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things that we do. One of them, just because we know that because of the sense of isolation, so even though, for instance, there will be about a million miscarriages this year in the United States and about a million abortions, so about 2 million new losses, yet we're so silent about it that most people feel like they're the only one. They feel isolated and alone. And sometimes there's high levels of secrecy and shame that surround both of them. So we started by actually producing Uh, websites, anonymous websites that individuals, um, men, women, family members, and friends could visit to learn that they're not alone and begin to work on some grief activities. Um, And perhaps then as they feel able to um, look in our find help directory and find a resource that's in their area. There's so many resources that are available. Most people don't even realize that. Um, Then we also started to think about Um, How do we create safety in our culture? How do we start this conversation and how do we equip others to be able to support? And so we actually spend most of our time training community leaders, church leaders, 
um, as well as um, healthcare professionals on how they can create an environment of safety so that people can disclose these losses and then that they would know how to at least initially respond um, and then perhaps make a referral if they need additional help. So both services directly to the women and the men who have had the reproductive loss through the websites that you mentioned that are online communities, um, as well as providing local resources there. You guys are in the San Diego area, but I, I know on your websites, you point to local resources wherever people are, but then also providing the training to leaders and uh, community organizers about how to create just conversation about this, which as you've already kind of intimated, is is not easy. It just doesn't seem like this is something that we kind of know how to how to handle, how to talk about. Well, there's right, there's so many things that we learn how to do at the kitchen table or the schoolyard, or we even see it in the media. But when it comes to a reproductive loss, we often um, have not had that modeled for us. So we're really unsure what to do. Um, most people's strategy is to do nothing at all because they fear they're going to make it worse. Um, that's even for healthcare professionals, too. And the research and the studies, that's what they share since they've had no training. They're afraid to make it worse. So they say nothing at all, not knowing that saying nothing is probably one of the most painful things um, that they could do. The term you use in your website, which I, I love, I spent the weekend listening to a number of your talks and just doing my research and getting ready for this interview. And, and honestly, you impressed me. So I just want to know, kudos, you're doing great work. But there's one word that you use that I really want to kind of talk about was disenfranchised grief. Why, why does that term kind of capture what's happening here with reproductive loss? Absolutely. So there, there's a, a grief expert, Dr. Doka, who actually coined that phrase. And so what he means by that is that this would be um, a loss that isn't acknowledged by our culture. It's really treated as a non-event. And so therefore, the people who are involved are not given permission to grieve. Um, there would be other types of losses that could fit into that, but certainly reproductive loss really fits there. And so you could imagine, um, you know, I'm not sure how much your listeners are, are aware of just kind of when we, we talk about grief, I think there's things we naturally do and we're culturally supported in doing it. Dr. Warden um, coins them as like tasks of grieving. So there are things that we, we often do. These tasks are happening simultaneously or we bounce back and forth between that and the, the days, weeks, months, years that follow. Um, but so we're accepting the reality of the loss. We're processing the pain. We're adjusting to the world without that person. And then we're creating an enduring connection with that person that allows us to continue on in life. When you have a disenfranchised grief, um, you're hampered in all of those tasks because it's it's difficult to accept the reality of the loss. You know, certainly we we know the loss occurred, but that's very different than actually being able to just sit and accept that. And we do that communally. We process pain communally. We all do it differently, but we do it. Um, and then certainly, if you're going to create an enduring connection, if Culture doesn't even acknowledge this loss, this person um, who is not with us. How do we do that? So for most people, what ends up happening in a reproductive loss is that their connection is their pain or their guilt. And so sometimes in that grieving and healing process, they're not, they're not willing to let go of the pain or the guilt because of their fear that it would be as if this person never existed, um, as if they didn't love them. Um, and so culturally, though, we can help and create different connections as we acknowledge the loss of that person. So if I'm hearing you right, I mean, disenfranchised grief, I mean, I'm, I'm a counselor, so I'm familiar with the term and, and the work that I've done, the little bit of classes that I took with regards to grief and loss. But the, the term is... It, it's a catch-all term that basically says certain types of grief that don't fit in the box, right? And, and this is a particular one of reproductive loss that's so personal that because it wasn't a child that was actually born or out of the womb, and for the woman who carried the child inside, she might be the only one who really had that deep connection with that, with that person inside of her. Um, and so not being able to share that communally because it wasn't like a, a parent that died or, or, an, or another child that's outside or 
of the womb that was actually born and living, that those rituals that support that culture, that conversation isn't there. And so you don't know what to do with this and you don't really know how to, how to bring this to, to a community. Um, but what you said I thought was, was really interesting was that one of the things then that kind of becomes the identifier of the connection with, with the loss is the sense of grief or guilt itself. And so to actually go through the healing process, you have to let go of that grief or guilt. But what you're saying, what you're finding with some of the men and women that you've worked with is that they don't want to let go of that grief or guilt because that becomes the thing that ties them to the person that they lost. Am, am I hearing that right? You're, you're definitely hearing that correctly. Yeah. Yes. Mercy. Mercy. Yes. So what do you do with that? How do you help somebody kind of navigate that? How do you help somebody to, to let go of that grief or guilt and, and reminding them or encouraging them that, that they can let that go, but not lose that sense of connection that they have to, to their, uh, to their, their child? Right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, certainly one of the first things, um, right. If we're going to, we're going to enfranchise that grief, if you will, if we're going to give people permission to grieve is actually acknowledging the loss. Um, so that becomes very important in itself. So I know often people say, I don't know what to say. Um, and, and it's not that there are magic words to say, and certainly being present with someone and listening to them is the most important thing that we can do. But there are some words that we'll want to say, but saying something as simple as I'm so sorry for your loss in the same way that we would automatically do if they had shared a different loss that had occurred in their family is incredibly meaningful. It's so powerful um, in saying those words alone. And then certainly depending on your relationship with the person, think of the other types of, as you said, rituals and things that we would do around a loss. So um, I would typically go and buy a sympathy card and, and send that to the person. Um, if the loss has been recent, um, the same things we would do of if you're in the area preparing a meal, um, you know, coming to make sure that they're okay. All of those things signify that this loss is real. What has happened is significant and that we are here to support them and to join them in their grief and in their acknowledgement. You keep saying this and I think it's great that those of us in whether it's a family or a friend or just a community or a pastor or counselor, like get over your fear of sticking your foot in your mouth. <laughs> that would be the way that I would say it. Um, and, and actually just engage and try your best to meet the person with whatever empathy and understanding that you have, because even the little bit that you can offer is better than not saying anything. Is that right? Absolutely. The most painful thing is really saying nothing at all, because well, think of that. If you had lost a parent and nobody around you acknowledged that, right, how painful that would be. And so it's similar. But I love what you just said. We, we kind of have a saying of like, of, hey, it's, it's going to feel awkward, but it's better to be awkward. Right. And in relationship, you can always navigate that. You know, maybe you do end up saying something that. Um, you can tell wasn't helpful to the person, but you can always repair that. that that's part of relationship. That's part of just kind of being real and messy um, with each other. Um, but the key would be to be there for the person to acknowledge. And then that gives them permission to share what they want as they want to. Um, and for us to keep in mind, you know, we can't, uh, we can't hurry things along. You can't ever... Um, hurry up the timeline of somebody's uh, grief that's going to be unique for each person. And I know that that's hard because it's hard to sit with someone who's in pain. We want to, our gut is saying we want to alleviate their pain, but often we rush in and we minimize the pain is what ends up happening rather than simply sitting with them um, in that painful and sometimes awkward moments. Better to be awkward than silent is what I'm hearing you say. That's, that's like parenting advice 101. You know, when you're trying to have hard conversations in general with your kids, they're going to come out and they're going to be a little awkward and, and that's okay. You know, just accept that. But I think what you're saying is that by and large, people recognize your effort 
And as long as you're honoring and acknowledging and meeting their pain with empathy, um, that's, that's what helps in, in guiding them and giving them permission to speak about those things. Now, Michael Lean, um, what, why is this an important topic to you? What, what got you into this line of work? What made you say, this is what I want to dedicate my life to do? Right. And, and I wouldn't necessarily say in the beginning, it was, this is what I want to dedicate my life to. Yeah. But, um, I mean, for me, it's not, it's not for everybody. I certainly know on our team, um, there's a whole variety of reasons um, why people are attracted to um, be in our team or to support us. And certainly the main thing is compassion. Um, they notice that people are hurting and they want to do something to help them. Uh, but for me, uh, I ended up making the decision to terminate a pregnancy when I was 18. Um, it wasn't an easy decision, but it was a fairly matter-of-fact decision for me. And I was, I know everyone's, uh, you know, the way they react is going to be unique. But for me, my reaction was immediate um, and negative I really felt the loss. I understood my role in the loss, and I had no idea what to do with that. Um, I wasn't aware of really anybody talking about what it was like afterwards. So for me, I just kind of envisioned you get through this difficult time, and then you just kind of go back to where things were, and that wasn't possible. Um, and to, to fast forward through that, um, when I was in time had, um, well, I was going to say courage. I don't think it was that. I think I was just so desperate that I needed to reach out to somebody. And that began my journey of healing. And as, as things, as the pain started to get a little bit less, you start thinking about other people's pain and just wondering, are there other people feeling the same way? And so um, my first efforts was to offer to share my story. I simply wanted to let people know that they weren't alone. And that really began my education because at that point, I only had myself as a point of reference. But as I shared my story, other people shared their stories. And so I was so touched by um, men and how deeply they're impacted um, by abortion as well as other reproductive losses. Um, and speaking of other reproductive losses, I wasn't expecting this. When I would share my story, I would envision that, yes, some people who had had an abortion might share with me, but there were so many people who had lost children through miscarriage and stillbirth who would share their story and just so began to really see that when you bring up one reproductive loss, it often brings up painful memories um, of other losses. Um, it really does impact the entire family and the friends that surround them. And there's really like nowhere to go. And so when people see an opening, they they take it. And I'm I am I was struck by that and, and something that when someone's thinking of joining our team, something I talk with them on is just saying, you know, when you bring this up, you it, you need to realize that you're going to hear a lot of stories um, and it doesn't matter where you're at. So you may be going to um, teach one of our continuing education courses for mental health professionals and it's going to get real personal really quick because Yes, they'll be thinking of their clients, but they often have unresolved grief of their own in this area that they're going to begin to talk about. So what helped you, if you don't mind me asking, what helped you kind of get through that period and then really kind of get to the point where you have been reconciled to this experience and healed and then starting to, to help others kind of reconcile and get their own healing? Mm -hmm. Um, well, certainly it was, I mean, first is to reaching out to a person and having that person um, accept me where I was at. Um, I wasn't met with judgment. I was met with compassion. Um, and, and for me, that was the start. And then coming in contact with others who had similar experiences. So knowing that I wasn't alone is so helpful. Um, having other people acknowledge um, that that this was not just a loss. I know we focus on the loss of the child, but in a reproductive loss, as really in any losses that we have, there are multiple losses that that occur. So the relationship that I was in didn't didn't last. 
um, the way that I looked at myself was radically changed, right? There were many losses that needed to be grieved during that time, but having those acknowledged and given permission to do that and knowing that I had others to go to. Um, for me, and I know this is always very, um, again, going to be very different for different people, but this definitely did um, bring me back to, to church and to spirituality. And um, the most important part in that for me was I got to the point in my grief where it was very difficult for me to reconcile my own responsibility in that loss. In fact, there were times where I thought, can I even grieve? How can you grieve if you've actually created the loss yourself? And so knowing that there was forgiveness um, for that, that that was taken care of, which is a mystery. I don't definitely don't get that, um, but I'm so grateful for that. Um, and so, um, I mean, that was very key for me. Um, and then just having a, a community. I've been very fortunate that, you know, founding the organization and all the way through, I am amazed at um, the number of individuals who are just motivated by compassion and want to make a difference. Um, and so we've been really blessed to work with an amazing group of people and really diverse. So we do work within the faith-based community, but we work, I mean, we work everywhere in the wider community. And what we want to do is say, you know, we want there to be a place for everybody, wherever they're at, um, however they would describe their relation, uh, their relationship with the loss, um, how they experienced it. We know that people often have mixed emotions, so they may feel relief well, at the same time, sadness, and that's okay. Um, and we want them to know that there's a place to express that and a community for them um, where they don't have to do it alone. You're listening to the Always Hope Podcast with Dr. Mario. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to the show and check out past episodes. Like episode five, which was a conversation I had with Sarah Denny about women's health and the psychological effects of hormonal contraceptives. I am happy to offer this show as a resource to help people make sense of their suffering. Thank you for sharing that. Beautiful, beautiful. Your journey is beautiful. And I know everybody's story is different. But what I'm thinking about, as you said, is that you... You gave yourself permission to acknowledge the loss, which seemed to run counter to the messages that you were that you heard before, which was, "Hey, we can have this procedure, and you just should get up and keep moving as if nothing happened." But your your heart, your experience wasn't resonating within that. So I'm thinking about right now, maybe somebody who could be listening to this and, and has had a miscarriage or has had an abortion or a stillbirth, and they haven't yet shared that because of the disenfranchised grief. They've kept that private because maybe they haven't encountered a community that has been open or supportive to allow them to be able to share this. What, what advice or what encouragement would you offer to somebody just to give them permission to find that one person to speak to? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I mean, one of the things I actually would really encourage them to do is to visit one of our healing websites. So miscarriagehurts.com or abortionchangesyou.com. I certainly hear from those who visit that it's really helpful. It kind of eases you in. Um, you're able to read other people's stories. Um, there's activities that you can do. And of course, you can access that any time of the, the day or night, which I think is really helpful. 2 a.m. seems to sometimes be that particularly difficult time. Um, but there's actually in the healing pathways, there's also um, an activity under build support that kind of helps to you to think through because um, we do have to be um, careful about who we reach out to because people are unprepared. And so, you know, to think about, okay, let's think of a list of people right now who you're, you're thinking this might be the person. And then there's actually questions, you know, to on there. So is this a person who, um, who can listen 
right? We want to find someone who's going to be able to actually listen to us. Um, is this a person who can um, keep um, keep our confidentiality? So we, we're not going to feel comfortable if we go to someone and they're known as a person who's going to be sharing this um, information with others. Um, is this a person who is close to the experience themselves? Um, they may not be the best person, and maybe they are, but they probably have their own unresolved emotions, and so that might not go well as the first person to reach out to. Um, what if someone has really strong feelings, in particular on abortion? Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't go to them, but there are some who, because of their beliefs, are either going to minimize or exaggerate um, or come across in a judgmental way. Um, so we can kind of whittle that list down a little bit and it actually gives you some things of saying, okay, how do I prepare myself? And to realize when we share this with someone, they may not react the way that we want to. Um, and they may come around. It just may be that they're surprised or they're shocked or they just don't know what to do. Um, and we might be able to discuss and dialogue and get through that. Or we, it just may end up being a false start, but don't give up. There will be somebody. And for those who are actively involved in a faith community, um, you know, really consider um, someone within that community, within your church or parish, um, who may be specially equipped and already have um, some training and sensitivity, and they may be a good person to reach out to to start. Those are some great first steps to help people ease into uh, talking about this and working on their grief. If we can now for the purposes, I guess for the rest of the interview, can we break apart the, the two terms here? I'm, and I'm going to say specifically miscarriage and still, stillbirth, but the miscarriage and then abortion. Um, so if recognizing that there's interconnectedness between the two, like you said, once you start talking about one, it's going to allow people to open up and talk about both. But there are some distinctions, and I'm sure that there are some practices that you would recommend for women or men who, who experience one or the other. So for the rest of our time, let's just kind of break this up a little bit. Um, so starting with miscarriage, Michaeline, what, what is the percentage of women in the U.S. that have had a miscarriage? You know, I actually haven't seen a specific percentage. We, when you, they usually say by the number of, uh, you know, about about one out of four pregnancies are lost okay. in miscarriage. Um, so, um, and but there isn't. I haven't seen a study that actually shows like how that's scattered. But one out of four tells us that that's that's a that's a, a, a large amount of individuals who've actually experienced a miscarriage. Yeah, that's a, that's certainly a high number. And so being sensitive to that, if we're speaking about um, these topics, recognizing that almost in any given audience, there's going to be individuals who have experienced this per firsthand. Now, I know, you know, in our experience, my wife and I, we, we, we have not experienced a miscarriage, but a number of our friends have. And the what we have seen through encounters with them, um, that one of the areas that's been challenging has been the, the almost, I don't know how to say the tension or the disagreement between kind of our faith's understanding that this is a life, um, the Christian perspective, the life begins at conception versus what can sometimes be um, the medical model or the, the secularized medical experience that will just want to use the term POC. It's just a product of conception or it's just a, a lump of tissues, but not actually calling it a, a life. And the challenge that they face with a miscarriage about how to how to get their doctors on board to see them in, in, in this way. Um, how do you help couples kind of navigate that tension between those two kind of perspectives with this, uh, with this experience of a miscarriage? Um, yeah. And actually I, I think that culturally that's be, it's beginning to, to, to change a bit. It's good. Um, it's good. Yes. Uh, it definitely. So, but that doesn't mean that a, um, a healthcare professional is going to feel like they're actually equipped to be able to dialogue in that area, right? They're, they're trained to, to treat the physical things um, that you're going through. And often they're not trained beyond that. That's something like perspectives is trying to change um, while we're waiting for that to do it. So, you know, you may have to be looking outside of 
um, the medical community, um, to those around you. But even since we are talking about that, when a miscarriage has occurred, it is appropriate um, to inquire from the medical team um, that um, are there any remains um, and then can we you know, if you want to then bury those or whatever you decide to do, to ask for a referral for the chaplain or for whatever services are within that setting that could help you to do that. So there's been great change when it comes to stillbirth. You know, 10 years ago, um, there unfortunately um, weren't the type of services that are available now. So now your typical hospital, they are prepared in that instance to create memories, um, to make sure that um, the remains of that child are treated with dignity and that the parents are given the opportunity if they would like. Um, so there's a number of things that are in place, but they often haven't thought of that as you go back earlier into pregnancy. And that's not always, um, you can't always do that, um, depending on um, what has happened with the miscarriage, but it is appropriate to ask. It's appropriate to ask as well. Um, often they've kept um, scans, you know, maybe you would like a video or a picture as, as a reminder. Um, it certainly is appropriate to ask for that. Um, and even if the doctor or nurse doesn't quite get it, I would just say have someone there advocating for you. Um, and then really, and this is where the faith community, I think, has such a special role, because I think that if couples were aware that there were services and things that were available for them to memorialize their child, um, that that proactively, that that would really help them through the process. Um, so we talked again, right, that connection, often it's our pain or our guilt. And so if we have the opportunity to, if the parents want to name the child, if they would like to have a service, um, if they would like to bury the child, if they'd like to plant a tree, if there's a place, um, a garden or somewhere um, on the church grounds that we can memorialize. Right? There's lots of different things that can be done, but I think the church could become very much more proactive in that so that people realize that that was actually available to them. And then for those who that time has passed, so it's years or decades ago, um, I certainly know faith communities who will have um, a special service annually or biannually so that people can come and they can participate at that time and they can memorialize at that time. So with the medical community, recognizing that you have permission to ask for the remains, if there are any, I hope people are aware of that. And then what you do with that, certainly to, if you're a Christian, bringing that back and, and having a Christian burial, following the rituals that we spoke about earlier that are typically there for, for grief and loss, and giving yourself, again, permission to, to grieve the way that you feel like you need to grieve with regards to this. Now, with couples, I know sometimes the loss of a child can prove to be very strenuous on a relationship. Um, I'm thinking about a husband uh, think uh, with a marriage, with a miscarriage that, you know, he, the, the man didn't carry the child. And while certainly he, he had some connection, depending how early in the pregnancy may have been, it, it doesn't compare to a, to a woman's connection with, with her, with her, with her child that's inside of her. What, what would you say to a husband um, who's had a miscarriage and, and how would you encourage him to, to support his wife and to, to honor his own grief after a miscarriage? Yeah. And, you know, I, I know that um, each of the individuals in, in the couple are going to experience this differently. I'm not, but I'm not really comfortable necessarily comparing um, that. Um, and so we know it's different, but we also know through, through research and study on this that men feel the loss very deeply. Um, there's some concepts. Um, one is the reproductive story. We all begin to write that story early as children. We begin to envision our life in the future, which often we have some sort of vision of family or children. And we actually begin to form bonds and connection, both boys and girls, 
from very early on. And one thing we never envision in our future is having a reproductive loss. So we're really unprepared for that. We often feel that we failed. Um, women may feel that their body failed them, but men often feel that they failed somehow to protect. Um, and, and so there's this, this really grabs at people deeply. Um, there's a, the perinatal grief scale is a measurement that, that is used. It's imperfect, of course, um, but it's used to measure this. And I know for when you look at the studies, the assumption by the female psychologist was that women would score much higher than men. And they found that that wasn't true. They found that women do score higher immediate in six months after a year after, but not much higher. And at the two year point, often men are scoring higher than women. And especially in the area of despair, feeling helpless and helpless. And so there's theories behind that. Um, but part of the thought is that if there, when there's a loss, if there's a tension at all, we focus on the woman. And the message to him is that the loss has occurred to her and that it's his role to care for her. And it's a beautiful thing to care for her. And I, most men say that they appreciate having a to-do list so that they feel really out of control and they kind of can go down that. But what happens is at some point that grief begins to at least diminish a bit for the woman. He's not needed in that role anymore, but he has all his unresolved feelings. And now we're, you know, one year, two year, three years down the road and they're afraid to bring it up again. They're afraid that they're going to make it worse for her. And so he just kind of sits here in that state. So I think being really sensitive about where men are with this. And it's very important to acknowledge their grief and their loss and to give them permission and for his wife or partner to know that um, at some point it's going to be her job to support him and to be the quote unquote strong one, if you will, to give him permission to go through whatever type of feelings and to know they'll be different. Um, I know it's stereotypical, but we often think of women as crying and you know, um, displaying their grief that way, which would be what they call intuitive grief. Um, we think sometimes of men as being more active um, we know that that doesn't necessarily work that way. In fact, when I think of my sister and myself, she tends to be the one who's intuitive in her grief. I tend to be instrumental. I tend to just work harder. I do more. It's part of the way that I kind of cope and move through that. Um, but if I could just give you like a, an example, um, in a case study in one of the books on the reproductive story. Um, so the, the therapist has seen this couple they have experienced a miscarriage and um, when they come back from the hospital, she, the husband takes her up into the bedroom. She crawls under the covers. You know, they pull the blinds, pull the shades, turn the lights off. That's where she wants to be. Absolute quiet in the dark. He goes downstairs. Short time later, she hears this tremendous racket coming from the kitchen he's ripping out the kitchen cabinets and she's furious. Like we just lost our child. What in the world is he doing? But it comes out in the counseling that he's down there ripping out the kitchen cabinets because he feels completely out of control. He has so much emotion that he just needs to literally destroy and rebuild something. And then on top of that, his wife had been nagging him for months to do that very thing. And he felt like this was something he could do for her. And yet this became a place for them of disconnect and judging each other and not being able to communicate. But you can imagine in that moment when she's realizing that noise was his love for her and the child, how meaningful that was. So I think really keeping in mind, we're going to be different and we need to allow each other to be different and to know that our connection and our relationship is different. And so we will grieve it differently. Um, research shows families who allow each other to talk about this and 
I say talk doesn't necessarily mean words, but to communicate about it and to have our own unique story and to have each of those stories be honored and be okay. As a counselor, I'm always just struck by how complex our emotional lives are in, in a situation like this where two people are grieving this differently. I hear what you're saying, Michaeline, which is just that one of the best ways of preventing people from drifting apart in the midst of a circumstance like this is to just to continue to talk and to acknowledge that each one is going to to grieve this differently uh, in time and in energy and in direction. And and I have to admit, I, I'm, I, I really appreciate you, you, you setting me straight here and, and recognizing that maybe I, I wasn't over, as attentive or sensitive to, to the male um, in regards to, um, to his grief. I, I think it's, I think it's great. Um, I'm grateful for all the research that you have to, to honor that and acknowledge that because it is, it's just so complex and that they are both connected in this and they are both desiring to grow and heal and support one another. Now, now with that couple that you talked about um, with regards to the, the cabinet work there, once she was able to see that and hear that, you said that she, she could really see that that was his love for her coming through in the middle of the night. And that helped them to reestablish that connection. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then we can't forget the, the children and the siblings, right, who are impacted as well. And I had an encounter last week, as you had mentioned, of being cognizant of wherever we're at, that there will be people who will be impacted by these losses. And um, it was actually having a business lunch. So um, there was a leader of one organization who wanted to introduce me to the leader of another. And they had a couple other staff members who were there as well. So we're talking about this and how we might collaborate and how we might work together. And at the end of the meeting, I pulled out one of our, our newest resources. We have a, 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 a small workbook that's called Hope After Loss for those who've been impacted by miscarriage. And so I was showing it to them and, um, it, and, and I had a limited number, so I couldn't leave one with everyone. And so one of the younger staff members was looking at it. And, um, and so one of the other leaders of the organization said, are you going to keep that? Because she wanted to take it. And this young woman looked reluctant and then, you know, and, and I and I just said, oh, you know, if you want to keep it. And she said, thank you. I really want to give it to my mom. She lost five children between me and my brother. And then she just started crying. And I thought I was struck again. I was actually in my mind had this moment of like, oh, my gosh, was there anything in our conversation that would have come across as unfeeling or uncaring? Because we were talking about like goals and reaching people. Right. And sometimes right. you lose the very people themselves in it. And I don't think that we did, but maybe. And and then she began to share you know, share her story through that. But I was just struck that here we were talking about the people out there that yeah. we were going to help. And here was this young woman sitting with us carrying this deep pain um, that only came out in that moment because she didn't, she didn't want to give that book away to somebody else. Yeah, no, I, 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 you're, you're right. I, how did you respond to her? I mean, what, what'd you say to her? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I told her that I was, I mean, I was sorry for her loss. She, she was very concerned about her mom and saying that she felt that her mom was never given the space and the time to really resolve. And now that it's, you know, decades past that, how do you have that conversation? And so we talked a little bit about that, but I have to say that when I start to hear that, what actually becomes uppermost in my mind is actually not her mom at that moment. It's her. Right. Um, I think that we see someone who's hurting. And so it's so dear that she wants to help her mom, but clearly she's grieving yes. and no one's ever given her permission to grieve over the loss of her siblings. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually what, what we talked about is just saying that I'm sorry that you lost your siblings and perhaps, perhaps before you give this booklet to your mom, maybe you'd like to go through it 
yourself. Um, and that has to be gentle. And I tried to be gentle. And, and as we talked more, she just said, that's a really good idea. Um, and then I said, when you're, when you're ready, why don't you share with your mom why you went through the booklet? Um, and then that can be a place for the two of you to start to, to talk about it. This is Dr. Mario again, and I am taking another quick break in my conversation with Michaeline Friedenberg from Life Perspectives to invite you, dear listener, to follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. Hit me up with some questions or comments about this show or previous episodes. Thanks. If we can, just for, for the remainder of our time, can, can we shift and talk a little bit specifically about abortion? The stat that you've thrown out, if, if I heard it right, is that when a, the average American woman at, by the age of 45, three out of 10 have had at least one abortion. Is that right? Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah depending where you look, three to 10, one out of four, um, but a, a significant percentage. Significant amount. Of- we're, we're speaking a third or a fourth of all 45-year-old women in America. Is that, is that right? Yes. That's a significant number. Yeah. That's right. correct. And of course, there's the man who is involved with that as well. Do they so, do you have the yeah. studies for men in terms of what the percentages are for men? Do you know? Um, no, there, there is. There, when they look at it, they're, they're looking at women in this sure. case. But we can certainly extrapolate and know that um, certainly there's a significant percentage of men as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I imagine that one of the differences between speaking about miscarriage and then speaking about an abortion is just the, the political landscape. That term is just so charged. I mean, you just see it and immediately everybody kind of gets their defenses up and is ready to, to defend their position or their, their point of view related to it. And so I, I'm not going to go there, but just to say that I think that I would imagine it's just the, the emotional chargedness. I don't think that's a word, but I made it a word. Anyways, this is, is part of what makes it just difficult to even reach people and help them. It, it, am I assuming that incorrectly or what, how do you guys navigate that? You know, you're, you're, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct in that. So, um, the person who has, um, participated often fears judgment, um, doesn't know what to expect if they were to share something like this with others. Um, and, and then, yes, it can just be difficult in itself to, to bring it up. Um, you know, I think just simply like we've just done acknowledging that it's really sensitive. It's very sensitive. It's very personal and it can be really politically charged. I think just doing that, um, that's something that we try to proactively do, um, as well as then taking straight to, um, for the person who has been impacted, Right. We want to we want to be present for them wherever they're at. We're making no assumptions about how they um, how they reacted. We know everybody's impacted differently and we know it's really common to have mixed emotions. Um, But for most people, they minimally want a place to process and they need a safe place to do that where they can be heard and people can respond to them compassionately. I would imagine, I mean, this, what you guys offer in terms of aftercare for women and men who have experienced this type of loss, that, I mean, I guess I would think only the most hardened of political individuals would, would, would disagree with this. I mean, I think everybody, whether they're left or right, wants to help, right? I mean, like, but I would imagine you still have to kind of navigate a tightrope as you're, as you're trying to help people, regardless of whatever their political leanings are. Um, I mean, I think for us, the thing is that, yes, what we have found, right, it's, again, if, if, if they know that someone may be hurting, they instinctively want to help them. So that's already, that's already there. So often it's just us reassuring that that's, that's all that we're talking about. (laughs) We're not talking about anything else. We're just simply saying we want to be attentive to that person. Um, and to to be ready to respond and accept them where they're at. Um, and when we're in that place and they know that this is not about politics, quite 
frankly, it's not about religion. Um, it's just about that one person. Um, then all of that other stuff really just kind of evaporates um, and we're able to, to focus there. Awesome. Great, great stuff. Now, what are the differences then, if we can? What do you see or what does the research show about the, if it can be even conceptualized, I guess, between the experience of a miscarriage and the experience of an abortion? Are there any differences that are there? Well, I mean, I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly, there certainly are differences because the way that the loss occurred is different. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but interestingly enough, there's so much, there is more similarity um, than one would think. Um, in fact, I don't, I don't know why I am continually surprised, but I feel like I am continually surprised when I read the stories and see so much similarity. And there's an exercise on both miscarriagefruits.com and abortionchangesyou.com where you can choose from a list of 100 emotions. And you can click on those emotions of like what you're feeling right now. And it, it, it ends up creating this kind of wall of emotions, we say. So you see what you're feeling, but you're seeing what other people are feeling. And when I, when I put those side by side on any given day, they are so similar. I'm just struck by that. Um, so, um, I mean, in some ways for the helper, that's helpful because there's not as much nuance as one would think, but then there certainly is nuance and, and there is not really any hard and fast research on this. So this really just comes from, um, I think experientially for us as a team, um, as well as maybe theoretically. Um, but I, I think I had mentioned earlier that there's high levels of guilt and shame for both abortion and miscarriage. In fact, an NPR study a couple years back, 50% of the respondents who had, uh, had a miscarriage, both men and women felt guilty, 25% felt shame. So this is without any sort of political right, discourse around it. Um, and then of course there's high levels as well, maybe higher when it comes to loss after abortion. But so in each instance, there's often this sense of, I, I am at fault. But the story came in this weekend on miscarriagehurts.com where she said, when I looked back at my calendar, I saw that I took this detox tea. I think that's why I miscarried, right? So she's now blaming herself that this is why this has happened. So where I see the nuance is that at some point, this lady hopefully can come to the point where she can accept that she didn't cause that miscarriage. Now that's really challenging. We might think that's welcome, but if she doesn't drink the detox tea next time when she's pregnant, then she won't have a miscarriage, right? So you kind of almost envision you have control. It's hard to say, I have no control and this could happen again. It creates a lot of fear. Um, and so that's a difficult thing to do, but the truth is she did not cause it. Now, when we look at someone like myself who chose to terminate the pregnancy, right? There came that point where I have to do it and someone couldn't sit and say to me, well, Michaelene, it wasn't your fault. Um, this wasn't your doing. It was my doing. And so I feel like it's at that point that there's, that's probably the biggest difference of accepting either that you had no control and this wasn't your fault or that, yes, I did play a role in this, right? And how do, how do I accept that? And how am I able to, to move forward? And that, that's a clear distinction because then when somebody does come to the recognition or acceptance that, that they did have a choice in this matter. Now, again, I know that there are, everybody's story is different and there's a lot of you know, compounding factors that may limit one's yes. freedom in the choice, quote unquote, that they made to do this, but still they have to recognize and reconcile that. The word that you said earlier that played a role for you was the notion of, of well, spirituality, but, but forgiveness specifically. And again, knowing that that's a different journey for everybody, can't force that on somebody, you know, quickly on. But I would imagine that that would be a point where somebody would have to get to is being able to forgive themselves or accept forgiveness for, for this decision? 
Yes, and I know that's going to look different for each person, but right. that's certainly a distinctive that I I see. You know, there um, there are well over a thousand stories on abortionchangesyou.com. Um, I'm going to guess from how people write their stories that most of them are not coming from any specific faith background, mm-hmm. um, but there is a common theme of a quest for forgiveness. Um, can I forgive myself? Can God forgive me? Even for people who clearly are not a person of faith, um, who maybe never even thought about God before, but that there's this sense of this is more than me. This is bigger than me. How am I going to be able to do this? And, 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 and people will look at that differently, right? For some, they will say, I'm going to make different decisions. I'm going to make sure that this lesson is never lost. Um, and I'll do things from there. Others, um, that will be something that will drive them um, to some sort of, you know, spirituality or faith solution for them. It will be different for each person. But you definite, I definitely see that, that theme um, and for those who are a person of faith, um, sometimes accepting God's forgiveness feels a whole lot easier than forgiving ourselves. Do you find another distinction between those who come to the website or to your workshops, um, who maybe have had an abortion recently within the last year or so versus those who maybe have had it decades ago? Um, you know, it's interesting because at, at one time, um, not that long ago, um, your typical person, from my understanding, who would be reaching out to like a program to go through would be 5, 10, 15, 20 years past their abortion experience. Um, that has changed in the past, um, certainly in the past five years, um, where there's there seems to be this uh, a desire to reach out much quicker. So we notice it on the website, um, those who will write in 24 hours afterwards, uh, a week afterwards, a couple months afterwards, but we also hear it from um, those healing programs um, and they're caught off guard because of course, where someone's at five days as opposed to five years afterwards is very different. I mean, if we can think back to a loss that we've experienced, it doesn't have to be a reproductive loss, but those first days, you know, you, you can barely get through the day um, as opposed to even if you have a lot of pain and sadness five years later, most people have long ago been back into kind of their normal routine, right? So it's different. And a lot of time has elapsed in between and the way we understand the loss might be different. So it's, it definitely is different in what you would do for each of those individuals. And I think that we're still in the learning process of what you do in those early days of grief, as opposed to what would you do when there's been a significant time that's elapsed okay. in between. So, so I know you said you're still kind of in the learning process of that, but is there anything even preliminarily that you've discovered that would help make those distinctions clear? So what, what would you say to somebody who maybe had the abortion a couple months ago? Um, what would you say to that person? Uh, we typically encourage, just like you would with any other um, grief uh, recent grief that someone has been through, I think some of the first things would be really checking in on them, right? How are they eating? How are they sleeping? Um, you know, those types of things. Are they able to actually take care of themselves, um, keen in on if anyone is really in great distress? I mean, you will have some people who have, you know, suicidal ideation or feeling depressed or maybe even some symptoms of PTSD, depending on the procedure that they went through. So there's definitely, you have more people choosing medication abortion, so their the termination is completing at home as opposed to those surgical. And you can imagine there's a distinction and sometimes a level of trauma that's there. So really inquiring about how they are doing um, is, is just probably the best thing in assessing what kind of support they have and what we can help them with because they're probably just trying to still get through the day at this point. Those basic needs and just making sure that those things are, are being taken care of. Now, what about the second category there um, of women or men who had this a long time ago, and back to the point that you made at the very beginning of our interview, that 
the guilt is the is the connection that they have with the child. And so they've held on to that guilt for decades or for a long time because by letting go of that, they feel that they would let go of that connection that they have with their child. What encouragement or, or, or support or thoughts would you offer to that person? Right. And of course, as we know, it's going to be really different for each person, but just kind of generalizing, um, it is likely that they have not been given permission to grieve before this. So even though it's years afterwards, it's likely that they haven't really, I mean, not that you're not grieving, but you haven't really entered into the tasks of grieving because they haven't been given permission to do that. Um, So really, that's the place to start. Again, acknowledging the loss of the losses um, that have occurred um, and, um, you know, giving them permission to grieve, providing them, as we kind of would with anyone, with a little, if you will, kind of grief education, right? You're not alone, um, that there's not a timeline for grief. It's going to be different for everyone. Everyone's going to grieve differently, Um And, you know, we can't force that process um, to occur, but we can create a space for them so that they can begin to journey at the pace that they uh, feel comfortable doing at that time. So, um, and then of course, it's gonna be different for each person. Okay, you talked about creating that connection. Um, For some, they may wish to name the child. For others, that's not something that they would like to do. Perhaps they would like to go to memorial service or they'd like to release balloons or throw rocks in the ocean or plant a tree. All those things um, are very helpful for them in starting to create the fact that they share this with others so it's now communal, that others have acknowledged um, and then even if it's years after, it's, it's fine to still do a card, to give them a candle, right? To give them a piece of jewelry, to give them a token. All these things are, are very appropriate to do and will help them um, through that process. And will help them in time to know that, you know, I think we think that if we let go of the pain, we're going to forget. No, we will always remember and I think it's appropriate to remember this is a person um, that has been lost. We don't forget people that we love, but we can remember them in a way that um, that doesn't cause everything to stop. Right. The pain isn't so excruciating. We can't move on. Um, but so to also let them know you will not forget, but you can remember in a way that will honor them. Um, and, and can be, can be healthy for you, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, I think you're, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I, cause you, you just touched on something very, I think profound. Um, but what, what if, cause I work a lot with people who, who do struggle with just beating themselves up where it's almost like they feel like they, they deserve it. They deserve the guilt. Um, they're the ones who made the decision. And, and that's a black and white fact. And so they deserve to carry this guilt. H- how do you ease somebody's heart <laughs> in that? And I, and I know, I know it's different for everybody. I recognize that it's so hard to speak about these things generally, but, but just w- what comes to your mind in terms of encouraging somebody to soften their heart against their own guilt that they, that they beat themselves up with. Right. I, I think uh, this is kind of a place where I feel like at life perspectives, we kind of reach the end of what we're able to do. So it's a place that if, if someone's really stuck in, in guilt, um, in anger, maybe they're really angry, angry at their parents, angry at their partner. Um, you know, this could be a man who's really angry that she chose to do this and he didn't want her to do this. If they're stuck in that place, Um, I mean, certainly we would be recommending, this sounds like a spiritual need, this sounds like time to reach out um, to somebody, a a faith leader who can help you um, to process that and to help you through that that part of the journey. Amen. Well done. Okay, great. Well, Michaeline, thank you so much for the interview. If anybody's listening to this and they want to get more information about you or life perspectives, where would you encourage them to go? 
um, please visit our website, lifeperspectives.com. So on lifeperspectives.com, you, um, you know, that's kind of a, a landing page as well. You can find the healing websites, abortionchangesyou.com, miscarriagehurts.com. You can learn about an app. We have a safe place app you might want to download that gives you some simple tips on how to help others um, that maybe someone's um, interested in our training or they'd like to purchase a sympathy card. They can do all of that on lifeperspectives.com. It's a great resource. Hopefully the, the listeners will avail themselves to it. And now, Michaeline, my last question I ask all my guests, what gives you hope? Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, I, th- I think for me, it's, it's how the leaders respond to our message. So I know this is a really challenging topic. I know it's really sensitive. So I am just always blown away at, um, at how much, how compassionate that people are, how much that they want to help, how they are willing to dive into this, even if it means they have to like get into their own pain to be able to help others. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, God bless you and your work and, and have a great day. Oh, thank you. You too. <laughs> What's the takeaway for me? Honestly, that there are a lot of people silently suffering the effects of abortion, miscarriage, stillbirth, or infertility. And because it's so private, we just don't know who has experienced a reproductive loss. Another takeaway is that we need to get over our collective sense of helplessness with these issues. We have to talk about it, give people space to grieve, and pray for God's healing grace. Lord, have mercy on all of us and anybody who has experienced either one of these reproductive losses. God bless you and know that his grace is with you and he desires to console you and heal you of your pain. So please share this episode with anyone who you think could benefit from it. Thanks again. I never take for granted that there's someone else on the other end listening. Man, I love technology and I love doing podcasts. Be good and God bless everybody.